Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. Celebrating 75 years of excellence in social work education. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. The University at Buffalo School of Social Work is celebrating 75 years of transforming lives and communities. We would like to invite you to be part of the celebration. Please visit our website, www.socialwork.buffalo.edu, to see a full list of events marking our 75th year leading up to the gala celebration. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson. Today's podcast features a lecture by Dr. Bruce Thayer. Dr. Thayer is a professor and former dean of the School of Social Work at the Florida State University. Professor Thayer has written or co-authored over 300 articles, books, and book chapters in areas such as evidence-based practice, evaluation, and clinical practice. He is the founding editor of the journal Research on Social Work Practice and has served on over two dozen editorial boards. Dr. Thayer is first and foremost a practitioner. With clinical licensure and over 35 years of experience, Professor Thayer's research interests focus on improving the evidentiary foundations of social work and improving the clinical services social workers provide. In this podcast, Professor Thayer presents a lecture that traces the roots of the evidence-based practice process, grounding it in the best tradition of clinical social work from the early development of scientific social work to empirically supported treatments. Now here's Professor Bruce Thayer. The topic of evidence-based practice as a formal term and phrase is relatively new, having originated in the early 1990s outside of social work. But the principles behind evidence-based practice have been with our discipline from the very beginnings of the profession. Going back as far as late 1800s, you saw the move towards the secularization of social services and charity work which primarily was a function of religious-based groups. Going back even as far as like the establishment of Toynbee Hall, the settlement house in, uh, in London um, in the uh, 1860s, 1870s, that was actually a social missionary outreach of faculty and students at the University of Oxford in the UK. Um, Jane Addams came to Toynbee Hall, met the uh, parties involved there, and from there she was led to establish Hull House in Chicago. Very much a religiously influenced initiative. The whole Settlement House initiative had its origins in religion. You look at uh, Mary Richmond. Uh, in her early works, social diagnosis and social casework, she makes extensive reference to the origins of social work within uh, religious uh, charitable movements. But as folks like Richmond and Adams and other uh, distinguished predecessors in our field tried to uh, establish the professionalization of the discipline, they emphasized more the secular nature of benevolence and of uh, the coordination of, of social benefits and downplayed the religious aspects of it. And one of the ways they tried to emphasize the professionalization of social work was to link it more closely, not with religion, but with science. As you know, the field of social work, like all scientifically oriented disciplines, is strongly linked to the philosophy of science called positivism. 
and that's subject to a lot of uh, misinterpretations. What it basically means is that positivists contend that human phenomena can be investigated and analyzed using the same methods of inquiry that are found to be useful in the natural and the physical sciences. And that human phenomena is not by itself somehow different than the phenomena we see in all the rest of the world. Even subjective things, how people feel, what they believe, and so forth, the positivist beliefs can be profitably studied using mainstream scientific methods. Please don't confuse positivism with a derivative philosophy of science called logical positivism, which really is not widely subscribed to at all. Positivism itself, though, remains the dominant scientific paradigm philosophy of science uh, within both conventional science and modern-day social work. As they tried to emphasize the scientific and positivistic foundations of the profession, you can go back to the 1880s, all through the early part of the 20th century, finding that our uh, academic and professional predecessors constantly made this link, that we've got to make science, I'm sorry, we've got to make social work more scientifically based. In fact, that was one of the foundations of the Charity Organization Society, which Buffalo was intimately involved in, and that making giving more organized and scientifically oriented. The whole social survey movement in Boston, uh, I'm sorry, in, in Pittsburgh and other major cities like Chicago was based upon this idea as well. So the linkage between science and social work is really nothing new. It's always been with us in our field. In the uh, 1970s, we had a couple of uh, publications that, that came out that really gave the profession pause. And one was in 1972 when a uh, professor at Berkeley named Stephen Siegel published an article in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior where he did a systematic review of all the then available randomized controlled trials on social work. And what he found out is that when you assemble all the evidence together, one study after another concluded that social work really wasn't very effective at helping people and in some cases actually was injurious to them. This was a shock but it largely went unignored because in 1973 Joel Fisher, who then was on the faculty at the University of Hawaii, published his article called Is Casework Effective? that came out in the uh, NASW's flagship journal Social Work. Joel did much the same thing independently as Dr. Segal did and because Joel's article appeared in Social Work, and it's the mainstream NASW journal. It caused a huge flurry of reaction. Some of it was from people like Walter Hudson, who said it's a good thing Fisher did this because he's awakened us to the relatively flimsy evidentiary foundations of what we're doing, and we really need to be more conscientious about evaluating what we do and to adopt methods of intervention that really help people and don't hurt them. There were some other reactions that uh, uh, claimed that Fisher's methodology was inappropriate or they made personal attacks against him and his motives, um, but the basic message was sustained. And that is, as of the middle 1970s, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of evidence that the kinds of things that we did uh, produced meaningful improvements in the lives of people. The profession responded, in my opinion, relatively nobly to the challenges of Dr. Segal's analysis and Joel Fisher's review by setting about to deliberately try and conduct more and higher quality evaluations of existing social work services and also recognizing that many of the practice models that were then prevalent didn't seem to work very well 
tried to expand the disciplinary's repertoire of interventions by adopting newer models that seemed to have more promise for being empirically supported. Foremost among these, of course, was the uh, behavioral model. We saw people like uh, Scott Breyer in our profession in the late 1970s talk about a crisis in social casework, as it was then called, nowadays largely called clinical social work. And, and this too was, was met with uh, a relatively positive reaction by the field. And by the middle 1980s, um, there were some new analyses of additional studies that had been published since the Fisher and Seagal reviews that seemed to show that when you looked at more circumscribed problems, not global things, instead of juvenile delinquency, look at improving academic performance, look at improving a school attendance, look at reducing recidivism, as opposed to juvenile delinquency as sort of this global construct, and use very focused types of interventions, highly structured, time-limited, based on uh, sound principles from psychology and sociology and other disciplines, that you can bring about meaningful change, certainly in the short term and in many cases in the long term. As the 80s unfolded in the 90s, um, this continued to expand. A big impetus to this was given in 1979 with the publication of a wonderful book called Empirical Clinical Practice that was authored by social workers Rona Levy and Siri Jayaratne at the University of Michigan. And in their book, Empirical Clinical Practice, they made two basic claims for their practice model. The first claim is that social workers need to consult the empirical literature when choosing what interventions to provide to their clients. And the second claim was that whenever feasible, social workers should apply relatively simple single system research design methodology to evaluate the outcomes of their own work. There had been people that had made these claims before, but J.R. Atney and Levy packaged this in this wonderful book they called Empirical Clinical Practice that really seemed to hit a responsive chord amongst some members of the profession, myself included. I was a doctoral student when this book came out. It had a profound influence on me. Um, throughout the 1980s, the profession responded to this empirical clinical practice um, uh, model in various ways. One way is in 1982, the Council on Social Work Education in its accreditation standards mandated for the first time that the content in research courses must include information on how students can evaluate the outcomes of their own practice. This was an important offshoot directly springing from the work of J. Ratney and Levy, but Professor John Wodarski was the one who was instrumental in getting the CSWE to insert this standard into its accreditation materials. And that standard has stayed with us to today, to 2008, when you still see something very similar in the new uh, EPAS document that we have. That was a wonderful contribution of Dr. Wodarski to uh, work in this language saying that students should be taught to evaluate their own practice, and very few people think that that's a contentious issue any longer. Um, so we had a, a flurry of interest in the 1980s of schools beginning to adopt uh, instruction in, in single system research designs. And um, this is proceeded to such an extent that you probably can't pick up a contemporary social work research textbook right now that does not include at least one chapter on using 
what are variously called single system or single subject research designs, which, as you know, are an atheoretical model by which people can appraise the results of virtually any type of intervention. It is not, and I repeat this, it is not a behavioral model. Single subject designs have been around for a long, long time in very many disciplines, and they did not originate within behavioral psychology. But they lend themselves very nicely to the kinds of things that social workers do, because if we expect that our interventions are going to have meaningful impacts in people's lives that can be measured, then we can use single subject designs to evaluate those outcomes. As the 80s began to unfold, um, and the empirical clinical practice movement generated its own literature, this sort of culminated in a 1994 article by William Reed, published in Social Service Review, which sort of reviewed the empirical clinical practice initiative. And there was general agreement that J.R. Atney and Levy's principles were right. We do need to consult the empirical literature when we design our interventions to be offered to clients, and we should be evaluating the outcomes of our practice. But in the emergence of the early 1990s, there were two parallel movements that developed outside of social work that eventually subsumed the empirical clinical practice movement. And the first of these movements was called empirically supported treatments, slightly different language. This moved out of the American Psychological Association's Division 12, the Division of Clinical Psychology. Um, the APA, as you may know, is composed of over 50 divisions. Division 12, is a division of people with interests in clinical psychology. There was a section within Division 12 that set about themselves two tasks. One task was to devise a set of evidentiary criteria that could be legitimately used to designate an intervention, a psychosocial intervention, as having sufficient evidence to claim that it's empirically supported or not. Now, this was not an easy task. They assembled a large committee of people from diverse theoretical orientations and methodological perspectives, and they argued and debated for months about what the evidentiary standards should be. But they eventually decided upon them, and they were published to great acclaim by some people and great dissension on the part of others. But the standards were basically um, pretty straightforward and, and difficult to argue with unless you thought maybe they were too lax. And the standards that existed then were that to be called empirically supported, uh, intervention had to have been supported by at least two well-designed randomized controlled trials comparing the experimental intervention against either a credible placebo treatment or a credible existing alternative treatment. That the interventions had to be based on some type of structured treatment manual, that the designs had to be relatively good in terms of having adequate statistical power and credible outcome measures. And <clears throat> And um, there were some lesser standards that could be used for um, designating an intervention as probably efficacious as opposed to empirically supported. Uh, an alternative route by which an intervention could be designated as empirically supported would be to have a series of single system research designs involving a minimum total of nine participants. These would be experimental designs where the intervention was introduced and removed deliberately, showing clear functional relationships between the treatment and client response. Um, so you could go the route of the several RCTs, at least two, or a series of single subject designs involving a minimum of nine participants. Either one of those routes would designate that intervention with positive results 
to um, be called empirically supported. So after the APA's Division 12's committee came up with these criteria, they then began to troll the literature and looked at interventions that were already out there and began to make lists of interventions that could be claimed to be empirically supported according to the standards that the APA developed. And um, they began publishing these lists in the 1990s. And these lists were met with uh, great acclaim on the one hand and uh, dismay on the others because the lists were dominated by behavioral and cognitive behavioral interventions along with a few other things like assertive community treatment for persons with chronic mental illness or interpersonal psychotherapy uh, developed coincidentally by a social worker named Myrna Weissman, co-developed. Um, but they were largely dominated by the behavioral interventions and that was strictly simply because they had a stronger evidentiary foundation. Um, this was accomplished by the uh, middle to late 1990s and has continued on to this day. The work of the Division 12 Task Force uh, continues. They're constantly revising their lists of empirically supported treatments and it's proved to have a major influence within American psychology today. Although the movement has not been without its critics. For example, um, it's based upon the idea that um, statistical significance is the criteria used to determine whether or not something is helpful or not. And that standard it ignores the issue of effect size. So you can have an intervention that exerts a statistically reliable effect, but is actually quite weak and is not capable of producing truly meaningful improvements in somebody's life, but it might meet the standards set by the APA in having two randomized controlled trials that um, show that it's better than a, a placebo treatment or an existing established intervention. That was one criticism, and it's actually a pretty legitimate one. So the, the APA's uh, Division 12 folks sort of rolled along with this and have pursued it for uh, 15 or more years. It's still going on today, but it too has been largely superseded by yet a third initiative, and that too was developed outside of social work and also outside of psychology, and that of course is called evidence-based practice. This was developed by a cadre of physicians located in Britain, in Canada, and in the United States. In the early 1990s, they began talking about evidence-based practice, and they took a dramatically different tact than did the psychologists. Evidence-based practice is not at all about developing lists of approved treatments. What evidence-based practice is, is a process of inquiry that's taught to practitioners, developed in medicine, but has been very rapidly spread throughout all the healthcare disciplines social work, psychology, nursing, dentistry. If you were to Google evidence-based blank and put in your discipline there, you'd find a ton of literature, um, some of it very credible um, for, for many, many disciplines besides medicine. And you'll certainly find tons of it in, in social work. People have been looking at the, uh, the numbers of publications that include the phrase evidence-based practice within the social work literature over the years. And it's, it's an exponential curve just going up like that. You've been listening to a lecture on the historical roots of evidence-based practice in social work by Dr. Bruce Thayer. Look for a future podcast featuring a discussion on evidence-based practice in social work today. Thanks for listening, and tune in again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, 
I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our school is celebrating 75 years of research, teaching, and service to the community. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.